0: Hi, everyone. Welcome back. It's time for another episode of PEP Talk, AASA's Education Policy Podcast. I'm Noelle Ellerson-Ing, and I am AASA's Associate Executive Director for Policy and Advocacy. If it's your first time tuning in, thanks for joining us. Here at PEP Talk, we cover all things that could be remotely labeled as edu-policy, All shows are available for download under the Pep Talk landing page on the AASA website. Looking ahead, if you have a show idea or guest you think we should have on, shoot me a note, nellerson at aasa.org, or on Twitter at Noellerson. Our latest episode, which you'll hear next, is the first one to delve into rural education, and I couldn't think of a more fitting guest, Mr. John Forkenbrock. John is a longtime public education advocate with extensive education policy, particularly rural education policy, experience. He most recently served as the executive director of the National Association of Federally Impacted Schools, NAFIS, the organization that champions the Impact Aid Program. Since retirement, John continues to focus his time on rural education, particularly through his work with organizations concerned with rural ed. I enjoyed this conversation with John because he is a longtime colleague, mentor, and friend. John was a close colleague and friend of the man who hired me at AASA, and his career in education policy and advocacy has spanned some of the most consequential policies we live and work with today. I'm thankful for the opportunity to introduce you to John and to have him share his insight and perspective with his deep institutional knowledge on the realities of education policy. Thank you for listening today. From 1988 to 2015, John Forkenbrock served as the Executive Director of NAFITS, the National Association of Federally Impacted Schools an association that represented more than 1300 public school districts that encompass non-taxable federal land. In his education career, his work spanning more than 40 years. He started as a history teacher, did a stint on Capitol Hill with the Education and Labor Committee, and ultimately landed up in the land that we love of education advocacy and association work. John, thank you for being here today and taking the time to talk to us about everything rural and education.
1: You're more than welcome, Noelle. I'm glad uh, to do it, and I'm, uh, I'm, I'm sure I'm going to enjoy uh, the conversation. I'll do the best I can, give you some insights into my experiences on the Hill as well as with association work. What,
0: well, what? and you can't hear it, and nobody can see it, but I am smiling like a Cheshire cat because I think the members are going to love hearing from you as much of I, as I can. I've enjoyed working with you and knowing you. So our listeners are very familiar with our format on the podcast that I send our conversation questions ahead of time to make sure that we're able to get good content. So let's jump right in with that first question. How did you get into education policy and how did you come to be in D.C. and end up at NAPIS?
1: Well, this is a it's it's one of those stories, uh, Noel, I think you always I I kind of follow the basic idea that uh, I've kind of wandered aimlessly through life, but whenever a door kind of opened, I was never afraid to walk through it. I know that may sound rather odd, but when I graduated uh, with my undergraduate degree at the University of Northern Iowa in Cedar Falls, which, primarily Iowa, which was primarily Iowa, was primarily a teacher institution at the time. Like many others at that time, this was 1966, uh, the superintendents came by the various uh, campuses and you'd and interview for jobs. And actually, I really didn't even know I wanted to follow the teaching profession, to be quite frank with you, but in my junior year, you had to declare a major. And I had some education background, in my family had people that were teachers, So I kind of pursued that area. In any case, I got a job teaching at a rural school in Iowa. It's called the West Central Community High School, or School District, I should say. It was primarily rural. I think the largest high school graduating class when I was there was like 72 students. But I was there for eight years and thoroughly loved it. I mean, I enjoyed teaching immensely. I enjoyed the kids I worked with. In fact, when I think about it, I was like 22 years old and I graduated from my undergraduate degree and I was teaching high school seniors that were probably three or four years younger than I was. But I really enjoyed it, got really much, got very much involved in it. But the other thing I got involved in was the uh, local teacher association. And I got involved in uh, negotiating with the board and with the administration on teacher salaries and benefits back in that time period. And at uh, 23 or 24, I think I was like two or three years. Actually, I started teaching. It made me the chairman of the negotiating committee, which was an interesting story in itself. But in any case, I got along very well with uh, with the uh, with the board and with the administrators. But I, I understood uh, totally how a school district ran and and, and all the intricacies that were involved in it. In fact, the funny thing about all this, uh, Noel, is that throughout this whole process, I uh, I got involved in the Iowa State Education Association, the NEA affiliate in the state of Iowa. And as about 25 or 26, I got on the State governmental Affairs Committee. And we began to lobby in Des Moines, capital of Iowa, for collective bargaining for public employees. And in doing that, I ran across two members uh, uh, in, the, uh, in the Senate of the Iowa State Senate. One was Charles Grassley. We all know who Charles Grassley is today. He's been the, in the United States Senate from Iowa for a number of years. And another guy I ran into is a guy that many people don't remember his name anymore. His name was Michael Bluen. And Mr. Bloom was from Dubuque, Grassley was from Waterloo area. Both, both communities I knew very well. To make a long story short, um, ultimately in 1974, or first of all, I should back up and say I worked very closely with, with Chuck Grassley as a state senator, and he was very he was very approachable, and we did get passed in the Iowa uh, legislature a collective bargaining bill for public employees that did require. Uh, mediation, which worked well, and it worked well, I think, for the last number of years since it actually passed in in the late 60s. But in any case, for 70s, I should say. But in any case, um, I got involved in the 1974 congressional campaign with this gentleman, Mike Blument, who was in the Iowa Senate. And he ran for an open seat that was run because the gentleman that was in that seat was named John Culver. and he was running for the U.S. Senate at that time, which he won. And so Bluen, uh picked me up and uh, as a, as a volunteer during that uh, spring in, of 1974 and into the summer. He won the primary and he asked me if I would be interested in working as in general election. I said, yeah, absolutely. But I said, if you win, I want to go to, to DC. And he said, should be a problem. So my next issue was how would I get on my teacher contract because I already signed the contract for the 74, 75 school year.
0: <laughs> That's a detail.
1: <laughs> Which was an interesting experience because Bluen was a Democrat. And, and and the board primarily in in the rural primarily conservative Republicans. And even though I got along very well with them, they they pretty much knew my political affiliation. And so they gave me kind of a hard time, but in a kind of a in a jokingly sort of way with respect to whether they would or would not let me out of my contract. And so finally they did and they opened up in fact I even made a comment, I said, look, it, it, keep me in, just keep me on board, because I won't I wouldn't go to DC even if you won until January. And in the meantime, I used to work a lot with student teachers from a four-year private college, it was only about 30 miles to where I taught, and they said I could always pick up a student teacher during the fall semester and work with them during my campaign work, and then if, if, if I win, uh, or if a woman wins, fine, if not, I'd just pick up where I left off in January. But they weren't inclined to do that, so bottom line was uh, I was out of a contract, and now, of course, my job depended on whether or not I was or was not going to go to Washington. In the meantime, Noel, you'll appreciate this, I was engaged to be married. So my wife to be was you know, wondering whether or not we we're gonna live in Iowa, whether we we're gonna live in DC, and, and thank God she stood by me through the whole process, not knowing for sure what our future was gonna be. But he won. And so I came to DC in, in January of 75. I also got married in January of 75, which you can tell by where we're at now, it's been a long time. My wife has stood by me the entire 40 plus years, so that's that's a good thing. But anyway, the funny thing about all this, in terms of how I got to where I'm at now was the fact that when I, when I, when I went on board with, with Blue and Staff, I was in LA. I handled education, labor issues. He was also on the Committee Education and Labor, which is great. And he was also on the Committee of, uh, of, of Elderly, Senior Citizens. That, it was called at that time. But the interesting story here, Noel, is that in 1974, there were a number of, of Democrats, as you well know, that, that Watergate era, that were elected to Congress, including Paul Simon, George Miller. Uh, Tom Harkin, Chuck Grassley, et cetera, on the on, on, uh, on Republican side. And on the committee, Carl Perkins was his chairman. He was from Kentucky, an interesting guy, been there for a long, long time. And the ranking minority member at that time was Al Quie, which actually bordered, his southern district bordered uh, uh, Eastern Iowa, which is where I was from originally. And so anyway, long story short, as I said earlier, uh, there was a uh, some congressional reform that took place in 1974 but it was some committee assignments that were redelegated, and two of the areas that were once in one when the Armed Services Committee, which was defense schools, schools are run by the Department of Defense, and schools that were Bureau of Indian Affairs schools, which were in the Interior Committee, were moved to the Education and Labor Committee. And so Mr. Perkins and Mr. Cui, uh looked at that issue and said, "Look, we have no background on that, no knowledge whatsoever. So let's appoint a kind of a uh, advisory group, if you will, or a." A, a, not a standing committee, but a committee, if you will, that will get staff, will give it some money to look into those two areas. And so the first thing that Perkins did was he, he, he looked around for other members that were senior to see if anybody wanted to chair this committee. And nobody was really interested that was on the committee. So he looked at the, at, at the freshmen, which included Paul Simon, like I said, George Miller and some others, as well as my boss. And so in those days, and I'm not sure how they do it today, but there was like eight or nine new Democrats on that committee in 74 because of the, of the Watergate Europe election. And so I'm not sure how they decided seniority, if they did it by birthdays, they did it by you know, just picking out of a hat, I'm not sure how it worked out. But my boss, Mike Bluen, was the first of that group in terms of seniority based on that freshman class. So they reached out to Mike and asked if he would be interested in chairing this committee or this group, if you will, called the advisory study group as, as it was referred to. And he said, yeah, wait now, I'll do it. And so he said, okay, what we'll do is we'll give you three staff, but we'll give you a council and two assistant staff and you can put one of your staff on the Education Labor Committee staff. And so Mike came to me and he said, John, beginning on Monday, this was like in the fall or in the uh, early spring of, of 1975, the election occurred of course in 74, it's just like maybe May of 75, maybe June, I'm not quite sure, so in that early part of the year, he said, John, you go down, and, and, and on, on, on Monday, you're going to report to, uh, to Bill Gall. Bill was one of the guys I remember very well that worked with Perkins to kind of handle his administrative stuff, and said, you're going to go on committee staff. Now, this is the interesting thing, Noel, You can kind of detect the difference between personal staff and committee staff. When I left teaching in Iowa in 1974 with, a, with, my, with, with uh, eight years plus a master's degree, I was making, I think, $12,500 a year. I came to DC working for and on his staff, at about the same, maybe maybe it was at 13,000. It wasn't a whole lot more. But anyway, the funny thing about it, when on Monday morning I went over to the Ed Labor Committee, I got signed up, and he said, John, okay, we'll start you out at 22. And I go, 22,000? Yeah, 22,000. I got, I called my wife, thought we just won the lottery. So the interesting thing was I got moved from the personal staff to the Ed Labor Committee staff, totally through a fluke. As I told you earlier, it's kind of like my, my whole life has been kind of wandering aimlessly. The doors would open and it walked walk through. So bottom line was I got I, I got into the Education Labor Committee staff in in, in early 75 and remained there through uh, almost 1980, late late, late 1979, worked on the, on the Education Amendments of 78, worked on a number of other things as well, but I really got involved in an education policy. So you see the whole my whole story about D.C. is all a matter of just being at the right place at the right time. Again, wandering kind of aimlessly, loved my teaching experience, enjoyed it. In fact, just to give you an up-to-date little bit, one of the classes I had was a 1969 senior class in that school at West Central Iowa, West Central Community School in Maynard, Iowa. And uh, that 1969 class is now having their 50th class reunion, and they've invited me back to it in May, and by golly, I'm going to go to it, because I had such a good relationship with the kids. So anyway, that's a long story about how I got here, but that, that kind of covers the from A to Z. And I thoroughly have enjoyed all my time in DC. In fact, I told my wife when we first came out here, I said, Patty, we'll stay here two years just to get the experience and we'll go back to Iowa. Well, you can see that's been you know, 45, 46 plus years ago, and we've never gone back. In fact, now that I've retired, we even talked a little bit about maybe going back, and she says, John, you told me we'd go back in two years, we never did that, I'm not going back now. So here I am.
0: Well, you went back for the occasional visit, John. You just didn't relocate back. We're splitting hairs now. We'll split hairs.
1: In fact, I, I look at my class, which in, in Hampton, Iowa, in this class of 62, there was 99 kids in our class, of which there's still probably 70-some that are still around. You know, of that 70-some, i 80% of them never left the community. They stayed in rural rural Iowa. They stayed in that They farm. They went into business. In fact, the kid I graduated with in, in high school and went to college with, started insurance business and remained there ever since. So there's always that kind of a, of a, of a thing. Well, people grow up in rural states, rural areas and they leave. Well, that, that's true to some extent, but not totally. You grow up in rural America. Sometimes you just want to stay there's provided there's something there for you to do. But anyway, long story short, you're right. I still go back uh, almost every year. We go back periodically for a visit. I love it.
0: Well, and there's a couple of things I want to take away from your first answer, but first of all, for our listeners on the podcast, The jovial nature that you hear in John's voice is quintessential John. And I've been smiling the whole time you've been talking, John, because I just so love working with you. And your happiness just kind of exudes through everything you talk about. And so then I went ahead and told you that we were going to be talking about rural and education for an hour, and I just knew we were going to win. But I want to take a moment to fangirl, because the names you're able to drop, In your early career, well, Perkins, and I worked on the committee, and so much of your being at the right place at the right time just has my little education geek heart going pitter-patter, pitter-patter, because that Perkins that you worked with was the driving force behind the Perkins Career Tech and Educational Act that we just reauthorized last year, correct? Correct. That's correct. Absolutely. So, I I mean, you're just up there with some iconic education policymakers. And for our listeners, we all know that I'm way better at at identifying members of Congress and the Supreme Court than actual pop culture icons. So John being able to casually reference Mr. Perkins is just beyond anything I can fathom. So, okay, John, I want to take your long, extensive career and ask you one of my easier questions. What was your favorite education policy debate or Hill moment in your career?
1: There's a variety of things that took place that I, that I, that I remember very well. But let me, there's one in particular I want to extend, uh, expand on a little bit, because it's, it's an example of how in those days, bipartisanship was key. We worked with the other side of the aisle. And one good example of that occurred in the, in the, with the reauthorization of the School Lunch Act, which obviously affects rural schools, schools all across the country. And what happened was, this was in 1978, Bill Goodling, Bill Goodling was from Pennsylvania, also he became chairman of the education committee, went later on when the Republicans became the majority. And Bill Goodling had introduced an amendment during the house consideration of it that would set up a pilot project, pilot program to come up with school choice. Now, I don't know if you remember this or not, well, back if you're you're younger than I am, but back when I was in teaching and even in school, you know, you got you you, you didn't have choice. Your food was put on the tray, you ate it. A lot of times people, kids didn't like it, it would go in the trash. But Goodling decided, having been a principal himself in, in Pennsylvania, he said, school choice is not a bad idea. So we put together in the House bill, a six—I I think, a six or seven state pilot project for school choice. But on the Senate side, the jurisdiction of the school lunch program was not with what is now the HELP Committee, it was with the Ag Committee. And uh, on, that help, on the Ag Committee, there really was resistance to this. Because much of the ag programs, or much of the school lunch program, was a commodity program, which was very supported by the ag community. And they really didn't really go into this idea of a school lunch program that could develop choice that would make put together things at the table that wouldn't necessarily come out of the commodity program. So they did not include this in their bill. So we go to conference, now I'm gonna make this quick because it can be, I could extend this for longer than we'd like, but we go to conference, and, and, and Senator Humphrey from Minnesota, former Vice President of the United States, was the chairman of the Ag Committee. And we get into this conference back and forth and back and forth, and we get everything settled except one issue. The one issue being the pilot program for school choice. And so Mr. Perkins talked to Mr. Humphrey, he said, Mr. Humphrey said, we're in a, we're, and Pat Perkins would keep us in conference till well, two o'clock in the morning. I can remember a number of times going leaving the Capitol at two or three o'clock in the morning. And what an eerie feeling it is to walk to the Capitol when there's nobody there. But Perkins said, okay, tomorrow morning at 10 o'clock, we're going to get this thing figured out because we've got to, get this, got to get this resolved. So the next morning, we meet at 10 o'clock in the Capitol, and Mr. Perkins looks over at Mr. Humphrey, and he says, you have a you, you have a solution on this agreement about the, about the pilot project? And Mr., Mr. Humphrey looked over George McGovern, who was also on that committee, an interesting group of characters, and, and Humphrey said, you know, I got thinking about this, Mr. Perkins, and he said, let me give you an example of what I think we're going to do. He said, in the Humphrey household in Minnesota, and this is something I'll never forget, Noel. He said, when Thanksgiving comes in in, in the Humphrey house, we don't put all the food in the table because there's too many of us. So Muriel, that was his wife, puts all the food on on the counter. We go by kind of like cafeteria style. We pick the food we want. We sit down. We have the blessing. We eat. But Muriel insists, in my case, that she puts the food on my plate. So I want you to think about this, he told everybody. Think of your plate as a clock. At this point in time, Noel, well, you could hear a pin drop in that committee room. It was unbelievable. He said, at 12 o'clock, Muriel puts mashed potatoes and gravy. And we work around like 1 o'clock, 1.30, so you've got some, some dressing. At Maybe 2 o'clock or 3 o'clock, there's turkey. we looked down at 4 or 5 o'clock, there's some green beans. It looked a little bit, maybe 7 or 8 o'clock. We might even put a little ham on the plate. We've got some other green beans at 9 or 10. By the time it gets to 11 o'clock, remember my 12 o'clock, there's mashed potatoes and gravy. But for some reason, 11 o'clock, she always puts beets. Now, if you don't think about beets, there's all this purplish syrup that's in those beets. Everybody, you know, yeah, I understand where you're going with this. And he say, what happens is those beets will run into my mashed potatoes, and so now I don't like beets. And so what happens is half my mashed potatoes and gravy, all my beets never get ate. So you know there is something about this idea of plant waste, or food waste, I should say, plate waste, So we're going to come back afternoon. We'll make a deal. And they did come back afternoon, McGovern and the Republican side of the aisle, and they agreed on a five-state pilot project. that wheeled down the the Humphrey, or the Goodling for a little bit, but it developed a pilot project which today, as you well know, not only do we have choice, we probably have so much choice, and now we get into the issue about whether or not it's nutritious or not. But I'll never forget, as long as I live, that discussion about Humphrey, and the plate to determine whether or not we were or we're not going to have choice based on his experience between mashed potatoes and gravy and beets. You know where the monocle is, right, Noel, on the hill? I
0: do, I do, and so do a lot of our listeners and our members, actually. It's an institution. Huh? Yeah, the monocle.
1: I told that story one time at the monocle. Shortly thereafter, I was sitting at the bar, and a guy was going around doing caricatures. He did a caricature of me telling that story, and I have it hanging in my office, I had it hanging at Memphis for a number of years, there's a picture of me telling that story. With on, a, on my lapel, it says beats with a cross out.
0: <laughs> well, if you ran for president, you wouldn't make us eat beats. But, John, this is actually such an awesome story. So if I'm not mistaken, well, I know that when I started at AASA, my colleague here was Nick Penning. Didn't you work on the Hill at the same time as Nick?
1: I mean, that's very well. That's
0: yeah, that's so one of the first stories Nick told me about this launch of the program and we should clarify for our listeners that when you talk about choice, you're talking about choice in meal pattern for school nutrition, not today's current choice of let's do vouchers. We're talking about choice in food pattern and meal patterns for lunch, but Nick also spoke to this time about the debate over whether the school nutrition program should be commodity or cash reimbursement. And what I really take away from both how Nick characterized that discussion and how you characterize this discussion is the camaraderie and the compromise and the pragmatism. I would welcome a little bit more of that back here. But more specifically, do you know what I referenced in a Hill meeting today with House Republican staffers as we gear up for another school nutrition reauthorization? I hearken back to this 1978 debate because Nick had told me the story and the, the the way it went down to some of these last votes. And now, John, I have this additional story over meal pattern, Joyce. So thank you.
1: You're very welcome. In fact, you know, between Mr. Kui and Mr. Perkins, the, you know, the, the chairman and the ranking minority member, I can remember sitting up there behind the dais a number of times. And both Perkins and Quee raised horses. They both were horse guys, and I can remember one time. There was somebody testifying. I went with an administration person. I don't remember exactly what was going on, but Perkins and Quee weren't talking or weren't listening. They they were they had the testimony from them, but they were talking about horses. And Quee would say to Perkins, "What do you think about this horse?" And Perkins would say something. In fact, Perkins even sent, as I recall, a a a a, 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 a pickup along with a trailer to pick up a horse one time. I think it was upstate New York, someplace to bring it back to Kentucky. And he and Perkins and he and Quee rather would talk about stuff like that all the time was always this camaraderie. You know, there were issues in the labor side of the, of the community jurisdiction where there would be some distinct differences. When it came to education, we worked together all the time. Staff would get together, we'd have a couple of beers sometimes after work. There was never any of this hostility, this lack of civility that's going on now. It was a great time to work in the Hill. You know, if I was offered a job today in the Hill in well, I'm not quite sure I'd take it because I just call if I could deal with the, the lack of, 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 of working together, it's just, just, it's just not there anymore. Unfortunately.
0: Truth, truth. But I, I do think that the overall effort of ultimately coming together happens. We just get so caught up in the 24-hour news cycle or who tweeted what or keeping score and tit for tat that we often, and that's the royal we. I mean, as an advocate, us as associations and particularly Capitol Hill and this constant effort of who's winning and who's losing, we need to keep in mind that when you're working with education and kids, it's, it's not a zero-sum game and ultimately we need the kids to win, and I mean, we're we're going on a soapbox tangent here, but yeah, that's a sizable shift that I've, he- I've heard uh, people who've been at this game a lot longer lament quite consistently the, the the decrease in the civility of the discourse, and I've seen even in my 12 years here at AASA, the eradication of the moderate, moderate Dems and moderate R's, the people who were a go-to for compromise, I, and in my career, I think I've seen a shift from a default position of wanting to compromise to a default position of you're damned if you do. And I think that's really unfortunate, uh, particularly when you're talking about federal education policy.
1: Couldn't agree more than
0: that. Okay, so I wanna get another question in here, John. Tell me your favorite edu-geek moment. Have you ever geeked out over an opportunity that your work afforded you? A specific interview, a paper, a meeting, a presentation, an event?
1: Was a, there's a couple of those that, that, that actually are very humorous to some extent. When I was, there was a period of time uh, after I left the committee, and I went in, as, as I mentioned my bio, uh, I was in the Carter administration for a short period of time. I always kind of kid people. you remember there was a there was a president named Carter? But anyway, after after uh, Reagan became president, before I started NAEPIS in 1988, I spent some time doing some consulting work, and one of my clients was the American Union Higher Education Consortium, which was a consortium of 22 probably controlled colleges at that time. And during the Republican uh, control of the Senate back in the early 80s, uh, Senator McClure from Idaho was chairman of the House Interior Appropriations Subcommittee. And at that time, uh, when I was working with AHEC, as the acronym uh, is so-called, we were trying to establish what we what is called the American Indian College Fund. It's kind of like the United Negro College Fund in many respects to find scholarship money for Native Americans going to school. And so I put together a, uh, a fundraiser At a downtown uh, uh, restaurant, I can't recall right now what it was. And we invited Senator McClure to that fundraiser. And we invited a number of of, uh, interest groups that were interested in paying, I think, $5,000 a plate, something like that, which back in the 80s was quite a bit of money, to be able to have uh, your time with with Senator McClure. And of course, I was there. And it went very well. We raised money, and, and the college fund got started. And that's another story for another time. But anyway, when we were leaving, I was talking to Senator McClure. And I said to McClure, I said, you know, Senator are from Idaho, and my father-in-law is a shorthorn cattle rancher in Iowa. And I said, not too long ago, he was out in, in, in Idaho, and he picked up a, a, a steer that he was going to use, a bull, he was going to use to breed some of his shorthorns. It was a French breed, I can't think of the name of it. And McClure said, well, was it was a Cholet. And I said, no, that's not right. I can't, I just, I should know this, but I can't think of it. And he said, well, listen, you find out what that breed was, and you call me back and let me know. So, okay, Senator, I, I will do that. So I get home, and I ask my wife, of course, it was her father, and she knew farming, and my, my wife grew up on a farm. But she said, John, it was a Solaire. Okay, well, I don't know a Solaire from a Solaire, but I knew the term. So I call McClure's office the next day. I get the receptionist on the phone, and I said, now, this is a very odd call, an odd, an odd request. Fact, I was with the Senator the night before last at the fundraiser. I explained the whole thing to her, and he said to give him a call when I had the answer. She so said, okay, one second. She puts in hold next thing you know, I'm talking to Senator McClure. And he says, John, he said, what was it? I said, it was a Solaire. Oh my God, you're right. Solaires. I know them well. And we chatted for maybe a minute or two about those. And that, the reason I bring it up, well, is that you never know when a connection will be breached, And that connection with McClure paid me dividends over and over again, because every time I be out there representing the colleges on, 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 on interior appropriations. McClure would see me, he'd look at me, he'd ask me what we needed, and he never failed to do what I needed to have done. And, 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 and there was a Republican member, and I was working with a program that primarily was, was more responsive on the Democratic side of the aisle. But he and, and, and Quentin Burdick from North Dakota at that time, and Mark Andrews from North Dakota was on the other side of the aisle. We all worked together. but McClure's story was, was one that I'll never forget. The other one very quickly, When I was president CEF in 1995, you remember '95 a little bit, I'm sure, from what people said about what I call the perfect storm, as I mentioned earlier. Kasich was the chairman of the budget committee at that time. They were putting together legislation that was going to be a reconciliation, which was going to take money out of the direct student loan program, out of the school lunch program. There was a rescission, they were taking money away from the '95 appropriations, and the '96 appropriation was cutting education big time. And I was president CEF at that time, and, and Ed Keeley. Who was, a, was the executive director of CF at that time? He and I would periodically uh, meet with, with Secretary Riley, who was, who was Clinton's Secretary of Education during that period of time, to talk a little bit about strategy. What can we do to kind of rally the educational workforce or the educational uh, stakeholders to, 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 to fight off uh, the reconciliation, rescission, and, and budget cuts that were in the 96 budget? In one particular time, we were supposed to meet with, with Secretary Riley uh, in his office. On, a, on a, I don't know Tuesday or Wednesday afternoon or Tuesday Wednesday morning I should say, and that afternoon in fact we were supposed to meet in the White House along with some of the other education facts Bruce may well have been there, your, your old colleague. I know Mike Resnick was there from school boards and NEA was there, etc. For a meeting that afternoon, but in the morning we were supposed to meet with Secretary Riley. So so Ed and I go over to Riley's office and Riley wasn't there. And Susan Frost, who at that time who had been the CEF executive director, was working in the Department of Ed. And Susan told us that the secretary couldn't be there because he got held up on a, on a delayed flight from Denver and wouldn't be until the afternoon. But he will meet with us at the meeting scheduled over at the White House that afternoon, which Ed and I were invited to. So we go to the meeting in the afternoon, and there's, like I said, uh, there's, there, I think Bruce was there, Mike Resnick from NSBA, uh, folks from NEA, AFT, and myself and Ed. There was about seven or eight of us there. I remember George Stephanopoulos was there. He, that was Clinton's advisor at that time. And we talked a lot about what we're doing with the stakeholders in the higher ed community and the K-12 community? What could we do to basically reach out to members of Congress, and, and especially in competitive states, to beat off these three perfect storm elements, reconciliation, rescission, and, and budget cuts in the 96 budget? We go through a whole variety of things, and Riley's there. And the beginning gets over with. And so Secretary Riley said, Ed, Johnny, said we were supposed to get together this morning. Let's find an office here someplace, and, and we can get together and talk a little bit about uh, some other things that we can do with the education community as a whole, and I said that's fine. So Riley goes out the door from where we were at in the in the in the west wing area. We kind of wander through the area. I'm not all that familiar with it. Obviously, pretty soon we go in this room. And a, it, it, it overlooks the old exact office so We Look out the window, you see the old exact office building there. And on one side, there was a great shot, a satellite shot of of the earth from like a from like the moon or from a from a from a satellite someplace. And I couldn't see. The, the, it was a very narrow type room. I mean, we were sitting as we first walked in. Susan Frost was there, Ed and I, and Secretary Riley. I couldn't see whose office we were in because I didn't, didn't have my glasses on. In those days, I had I had uh, contacts. And if I had contacts, then I couldn't read real well. I had to have reading glasses. But if we didn't have contacts, then it would just fine. So I knew I was going to be reading some that day, so I didn't wear my contacts. So I couldn't tell. I, there was like a credenza way back, to, you know, the desk. I couldn't see who There was pictures, of, but I couldn't tell who they were. So we get to the meeting in, in this office. We walk out, and Ryder looks over at the secretary outside and said, thank, thank, When you see Al, thank him for the use of his office. We were in a vice president's office the entire time. I had no idea where I was at. So it was another little bit of storyline that I always remember in terms of kind of a comical side of the whole thing, a little bit of humor. <laughs> I kind of felt like Forrest Gump, you know, in the show where he actually meets the president. I kind of felt like Forrest Gump. All I needed was my Dr. Pepper, and I'd been inside everything he did. But anyway, Another quick story that, that I'll never forget in terms of a, a little bit of an unusual piece of of, uh, of uh, history, if you will, that that always that, that sticks close to my mind. Interesting.
0: Story. Well, and I, I actually chuckled out loud when you got to the punchline there, because I've been in enough meetings, both at the White House and, and the OEOB wow. and on Capitol Hill and at the department, that I could imagine where there would be some pictures that you might not Understand exactly where you are, but I was not expecting you to tell me that you accidentally were in the vice president's office. So that's a pretty good punchline, John. Good job. Okay, you. so Thank
1: you, John, you was a great dad to work with. Never mind, that's another story. But Riley was a great, great secretary. I really
0: enjoyed working with him. Okay, well, I'm going to keep going here. So, let's delve into the next question. Okay. Okay, so those stories you just told, John, including the one about Senator McLaurin, your accidental meeting in the vice president's office, are so key to something I think about a lot. It's actually the golden currency in my work, and that's relationships. Relationships are absolutely critical to me as an advocate. The relationships I have with the members, the superintendents we represent, the relationships with other associations, the relationships on the Hill with reporters, how do you think the role of relationships has changed in advocacy over time, and how do they matter to your work now?
1: You know, that's a, that's a good question. Well, I, I honestly, I don't know whether they've changed all that much. I think they've become more important, and certainly equally as important as they were back in those days. I go back to the 1995 experience a little bit again. You know, if it wasn't for the, for, the, for the coalitions that made up the Committee for Education funding at that time. We set up, I remember a couple things, the higher ed community set up a thing called uh, the uh, the Alliance to Save Student Aid, and the and the, and the K-12, uh, up the, what's called the Education First Alliance. And we all work together. And on today, it's no different. Whether it's the voucher program you mentioned earlier about school choice, I know the voucher program is very key to the, to the National Association of Fairly Practice Schools, as well as all of the organizations that are concerned about public education. And that you reaching out to to not only just education organizations, but I know in the case of the voucher issue, because much of it had to do with uh, kind of directing it towards military parents, the number of military-related uh, organizations that NAEPUS was able to put together to serve as as a as a as a coalition of sorts of, of stakeholders, uh, public education across the across the, across the country. Uh, it, it's it's such a key. I mean, relationships not only the thing. It's not only just organizations and stakeholders, but it's also members. You know, I always believe that, and that at, that, that axiom that says you never want to burn a bridge. You know, oftentimes when we maybe our, our, our agenda is more uh, on kind of the left side of the ledger, if you will, doesn't necessarily you don't reach out to those on the, on the other side of the ledger. It goes back to that bipartisan issue we talked about before. You try to work with members of both sides of the aisle. You try to work with organizations that represent both sides of the aisle. Because there's always going to be something. There's always going to be an issue where you can agree on. Maybe 80% of the time there may be issues where you don't agree on, but when you have those 20% you do, you've got to reach out and work together because it's important to them, as it's important to you. So I think today, especially with what's going on in the education world, the issue about vouchers and choice and tax credits, all kinds of programs that really undermine the concept of public education and and, and its purpose and how it's to be funded and the idea of separation of church and state, all those are key things. And the idea of coalition building is so important Again, not only between associations, all that are concerned about public education, but also members of Congress on both sides of the aisle that recognize that public education is a key to our nation's future. So I don't see it, uh, relationships to be any more, uh, I, think they were, I think I said they were equally important. They were important back in 95, they are important in 2015, they are important in 2019. It's something we never want to lose sight of, coalition building, stakeholders all working together for good, for good solid public policy. It's something that will never be lost. Uh, It it never should be lost. Period.
0: I couldn't agree more. And something I've really started articulating out loud, I've long sought it and practiced it, but particularly in the line of work that you and I do when it comes to association work, to the extent that I serve and represent public school superintendents, there's no way I could do anything in isolation. A superintendent doesn't do anything on their own they are constantly coordinating with the school board the teachers the principals the chamber of commerce their personnel their administrative staff if i'm at the federal level not also working with all of those same roles there will be a huge disconnect between federal policy and how it will work at the local level and so it just reinforces everything you said about how this work is so relationship centric and if anything goes back to what you were talking about a few moments ago about the need to be collegial and compromise and find the middle ground. I mean, it comes back to that.
1: Let me give you an example, well of your organization's importance in this whole thing, especially with OCRA, the organization concerned about rural education. You remember uh, a few years ago, uh, there was a requirement in the 2015 Every Student Succeeds Act, Section 5005, which required the Department of Education to put together a report on the status of rural education.
0: Yeah, that was underwhelming, but keep going.
1: And there was a draft report they put together, and you remember this very well. And at at OCRA, we had uh, the gentleman who was the uh, director at that time, or still is actually, of the uh, Community and Rural Outreach uh, uh, Directorship, if you will, or task force, we want to call it, uh, came in and shared with us that that draft. And we looked at that draft, and it was you and AES and the Superintendent's Association that really took that draft report and put it to... To, to, to the microscope, and you found things in there that, that were not directly addressed. You found issues that we needed to address, and because of AASA's really involvement in OCRA, and all the organizations that belonged to it, it was the Farm Bureau, it was the Grange, it was the Broad Grouping, the NEA, whoever it was, because of your work, and it goes back to the idea of all working together, we, we, we were able to respond to that draft report, and I have to admit that their final report isn't everything we want it to be. There's still issues out there, but it's a whole lot different than what it was in that draft because of the work that you guys did. And I really want to commend you for that. I don't think I've ever done that publicly, Noelle, but your work at AASA Superintendent's Group with OCRA was key to making sure that report was changed to to where it is today, which isn't totally where we'd like it, but it's a whole lot better than what it was originally. So thank you for that.
0: Well, you're very welcome. And I'm happy to pass that along more specifically to my staff. So I believe that was done in coordination with the Rural School and Community Trust. So AASA worked in close coordination with our friend Rob Mahaffey. And it was actually Sasha Podolsky on my staff who handled a lot of that day to day and did the written work in responding to that. But to your point, that's all it was. It was collaboration because yeah, they issued a report, but that report barely cleared the minimum standard in the law and was lackluster at best. So yeah, when you work for administrators who expect good things when final work product is turned in, you're going to get an evaluation with red line edits, and that's essentially what we gave them. You did it. <laughs> we did it, and the, the next version was less bad. I still wouldn't say that they nailed it, but the final version was less bad than the initial draft.
1: Okay. Bob first did a great job as well, and I know he's over there with two guys now, so that's great. Glad you guys are all together.
0: Well, well, and we're going to have a second podcast with you, John, because right now we're just talking about your career experience. I totally want to pick your brain where we focus or hone in on your experience with rural, your time at NAFES and your expertise in that area, because that's an organizational goal here at ASA. We focus on our rural work and have partnered formally with the Rural School and Community Trust, but let's save that for another hour. I want to get back to some of your career-specific questions. So, in your briefest elevator speech answer, John, what's the most effective strategy or tactic you've utilized as an advocate?
1: Well, I tell you, you know, I, I think a lot of times what you do is something that is based on your gut or experience. And the one that I recall that's, that's most probably in my mind actually goes to the impact aid issue, but it affects rural schools as well, was the 2013 sequestration period. you recall that very well? When when, uh, when we were losing oh, of sequestration. And one of the programs that was most affected by it was the impact aid program, because it's not a forward funded program, as you well know, it's, it's, it relies on funds from the fiscal year, which is which is current. And so I was looking at that and what the impact was gonna be on, on, on our schools, especially not only our rural schools, but all our schools. But always keep in mind that impact aid probably 70%, maybe even 75% of the schools in impact data are primarily rural schools. And so I was really concerned about that. And so my gut told me, I've got to reach out to Duncan, the secretary. I've got to make him understand that on all the things he's talking about with the Department of Ed, and he was doing a lot of work. He was doing a lot of, lot of rhetoric. A lot of things were in the press. Uh, he was going to go to the Hill to talk about sequestration impact on Title I, which was going to have an impact on Title I, but not until the next year. But finally, through a lot of a lot of just grinding out, I got a hold of Duncan in a way that that was that was that was that was meaningful. And all of a sudden, because of that, uh, because of that really strong advocacy on the part of myself as well as our members, we got Duncan to make Impact Day become what I call the poster child of sequestration because it was not forward funded. And he went to the Hill. He used Impact Aid as an example of of, of schools are going to be severely hurt. Schools are going to have to cut budgets, cut teachers. Cut programs, which many of them did. And then ultimately, we got him to, to actually address one of our, our NAFAS conferences that very year. And after which, he did his press conference with six of our administrators in different schools across the country. So, the advocacy is sometimes something that you don't necessarily have a plan for. You don't necessarily think down and, and, and you say, okay, well, this is what we're going to do this year. It's something that only experience and your gut will tell you what to do at a given point in time. And, well, you're good at that. I've seen you do this over and over again. Your boss, Bruce Hunter, was a mentor to me in many respects in terms of what you got to do. Mike Resnick, at school board Associates, at that time, was another one of my mentors. Sometimes you mm-hmm. got to do what your, what your gut tells you to do that you haven't thought about. And so advocacy and, 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 and what you're doing is, is, is so, so key. But it's, it's the knowledge of the system that makes it work well. And I can't emphasize that enough. Emphasize the importance of experience, not 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 being afraid to ask others for, for for advice. All those things play a key role in terms of how well you advocate for who you represent. Well,
0: and the last part that you said is absolutely something I internalized from Bruce. When you work for a national organization representing members, that is where all of your power lies. So as long as you are being true to what the members have told you is your priority. Anything your gut tells you to do is almost impenetrable on Capitol Hill because you can tell me that I, as Noel Ng, am wrong. But what I am telling you, what the superintendents have told me, Capitol Hill doesn't want to disagree with the superintendent saying what is or isn't going to work for their district. So if you can trust your gut and your gut is informed and driven and accountable to the direct feedback of your membership, that is a very strong approach and model for advocacy it served me well and it served bruce well and sounds strong parallel to what y'all were doing over at napis and continue to do over there
1: you almost had to do it at napis because it was such a such a different unique program as you well know and and sometimes and it was never a program that had i would call universal support we always had support which was always bipartisan which is very helpful but casey tried to eliminate the program in 1995 mm-hmm. Uh, Bush in, in 2001, 2002 tried to uh, basically annihilate the program. And so we always had to be prepared. I used to always tell the membership, always figure every six to seven years, be ready, because something is <laughs> going to try to you know, eliminate us or or, or, or to put us in a position where uh, we're a lot less uh, stronger than we were before. But you just had to be always looking for a threat and be prepared for it.
0: Well, we had that threat last year when Trump tried to convert Impact Aid into a voucher program. And you want to talk about building a coalition? Impact Aid with NAFIS was protected in large part in deep coordination with the broad coalition of the National Coalition of Public Ed, which is co chaired by AASA Sasha Padelsky. And that brought together all the ed groups, a bunch of uh, religious groups too that oppose this idea of privatization and vouchers and together we beat back that heavily flawed premise and this idea that we should privatize public dollars like that but the, that's, a, that's almost the note we should end on because it ties together so many of the important themes you touched on we're not done I still have my rapid fire questions for you but <laughs> to your point it had been six or seven years since we had a serious threat with traction to impact aid, so we were about due
1: that's right, that's right, exactly. And again, I apologize if I expended too long in some of the other answers my I just I get so excited about some of this stuff. I always going kind to of kick people when you get to be re- retired and, and I'm sure Bruce could address this as well, you kind of look at back what's happened in the past that, that made you what you are. You, you, you still look to the future, especially when you haven't totally retired. I mean I love what I do. I, I couldn't stop doing what I do uh, because it's, just, it's something I believe in. But you find yourself sometimes going backwards and, and and using examples of what happened in the past and trying to bring those up to date and use them all over again because you never know, uh, like I said before, experience is the best teacher. You never know when what you did mm-hmm. once before may well be something you're going to do once again.
0: Well, and that's especially relevant when you look at how often an advocate tenure exceeds the tenure of the elected officers on Capitol Hill. They think they have a brand new idea. And you can politely point out to their staff before they get too far into it that, no, this has been tried. This is why it didn't work. Now, sometimes we can fall into that idea that's been tried and we know where it didn't work and we can try to make it better. But that institutional perspective is critical to helping Congress understand that you're not as innovative as you think you might be. And we can at least learn from history, whether it means that we want to do it again or nip it in the bud.
1: That's a very good point, Well, because, you know, you think about it, staff on the Hill change over fairly regularly, at least most of them. There's some have been there for a while. And so it's your historical knowledge and my historical knowledge of programs that really helps staff be able to make the right decisions. You're absolutely right. Historical knowledge is key to good public policy.
0: Mm -hmm. Ditto. I totally agree. Okay, John, I got to get to my rapid fire questions because I'm looking at the timestamp on our podcast and I want our listeners to stay engaged. So, Really quickly, what's the story you are most anticipating for this year as it relates to education policy?
1: Well, I think it's definitely going to be the issue of the budget caps. Uh, As you well know, the caps are going to be put back in place beginning in 2020 based on the agreements that were made back a number of years ago. And we've got to ensure that the discretionary spending caps uh, for domestic spending are at least equal to that which is going to be provided for the defense side. Uh, if we don't get those caps removed, I think there's roughly about a $55 billion cut to the discretionary side of the budget, which is going to mean, obviously, cuts to education as well as other domestic programs. So I think the key right now, uh, and, and as you well know, uh, the House Budget Committee is not even considering a full budget as per norm, rather just simply try to increase the caps, which is what we have to have done. So I think the key thing right now, uh, in terms of where we're at at this very moment, is to do all we possibly can to get those caps increased to ensure that funding uh, the dollars and resources are going to be available for programs and education for the FY20 budget.
0: Couldn't agree more. So detailing more beyond just the budget caps, what do you predict for education policy in 2019?
1: Well, I think, you know, one of the issues is going to be, of course, as mentioned, funding as well, but infrastructure is another issue that we're trying to work on very, very thoroughly this time. There's been two bills introduced, as you know, one in the House by Congressman Scott, one in the Senate by uh, Jack Reed. That would, are identical, that would provide $100 billion for infrastructure for, for, for school facilities. And people don't realize, I mean, everything that's, they talk about infrastructure deals with bridges, roads, airports, and that's key, I'm not arguing that fact. But no one really understands that there is, a, at least a lack of understanding, I should say, that the, the school facilities are important, environment, correlation between environment and learning is so key, and especially in rural areas, because many rural areas, uh, because of the changeover in terms of what's going on in that area, the, the, the bonding is not as easy as it once was, perhaps. Uh, the economy is not what it once was. We need to find ways to, to, to ensure that, uh, that, 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 that the school environments uh, are such that kids can learn. So I think that's that's one of the key things that uh, that, that I think we're looking at in terms of COVID 19. And the other thing really comes right out of that report that you mentioned earlier. Noel, I mean, I had a meeting with, uh, a roundtable meeting with some of our folks about uh, two or three weeks ago with Michael Chamberlain and the people over at the department talking about rural education, what the issues are. broadband. That's a key issue. Internet connectivity with, with rural schools is a key. So many of my superintendents at that particular meeting said, look, we do have access to the internet, but it's slow. We have maybe one vendor. The costs are high. We just, we need more competition in our areas. And, and we need more technical assistance in terms of making sure broadband works in rural areas. So I think that's a real key right now, along with infrastructure in, in terms of infrastructure definition should take infrastructure I mean, should take broadband into that into that definition. So I think that's another another key. The other issue really has a lot to do with, with teachers and retention recruitment. Uh, the idea of, of, of providing rural schools with the ability to have apprenticeships. All the things that, that rural schools sometimes don't have access to, that they really need to keep economic development alive in rural areas. I know this is kind of getting off your, your question a little bit to some extent, but I think one of the key things to keep rural schools and rural communities alive is to make sure there's, there's economic development. In order to have economic development, you have to have an educated, core of people who want to stay in rural areas. So I think when you look at policy right now in terms of you're talking, about, you're talking about funding, you're talking about infrastructure, you're talking about broadband, you're talking about maintaining good quality teachers in rural areas, all those things together I think, are key in terms of where we're at in 1919. The other thing that's very key that people aren't, aren't thinking too much about, in fact, we have an upcoming OCRA meeting with one of our old colleagues, Jocelyn Bissonette, on the census for 2020. That's going to be key mm-hmm. to make sure that all people in rural areas are going to be counted for that census to make sure that there's no disenfranchisement for any one part of the population. So There's a variety of things that really are out there, not only for 19, but also for 2020.
0: And AASA actually filed an amicus brief on that Supreme Court case, which I believe comes up later this month. We're recording this podcast on April 15th. It'll be a little while before we roll it out because we've just been recording a a lot of episodes, but we're sitting here on April 15th. The Supreme Court case should be up on April 23rd, and we filed an amicus brief with our friends at the school boards and both principals groups weighing in on the issue of the immigration question in the census, not because we have an expertise on immigration, but the census as a data set is the backbone of allocation of public resources at the federal state and local level and if we don't have a robust response rate if people are not standing up and being counted rural areas will feel a real disproportionate impact of underfunding for the next 10 years because they won't be if you're not counted in the census the money can't flow to you and so that will be a huge issue i would argue the sleeper issue in education for next year Absolutely. And we're, we're trying to educate this. Okay, John, two quick questions about 2020. Are you running for president, my friend? <laughs> you know, no, I'm not,
1: but I have to say something real funny before we quit here. You know, I used to, you well know, I, Naples, I always would write a, a column in the newsletter. Hillary does it as well, she does it as well. But I always did it rather with a bit of humor and a bit of sarcasm. And one particular, um, uh, I've got it someplace, one particular column I wrote talked about I was going to run for president under what I call the Common Sense Party. And I go through a whole variety of things, being that my biggest challenge would be to fundraise. Could I raise enough money to be an independent candidate under the Common Sense Party and to bring some common sense to the presidency? Because certainly, we don't have it right now. I'll leave it at that. <laughs>
0: Well, if you let us know if this platform takes takes hold and we'll help push it out and make it an opportunity for all of our members, should that be their political persuasion. More specifically and a little bit more substantively for our final question, John, what role do you foresee for education in this upcoming 2020 presidential election year?
1: Well, I think it's got to, the, the thing we've already talked about has to be key, especially in the current administration. We have to ensure that public education is going to be protected. We have to make sure that the issue of choice, uh, tax credits, all the variety of things that this administration's talked about with respect to education, we've got to basically confront that head on. We've got to make sure that, that education is, 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 is funded properly. Uh, we always used to always talk about at least $0.05 cents of every dollar spent in in, in in federal spending goes to education, which right now, as I'm a great one, well, about 2 or $0.03, cents, as I recall, even less, maybe a little less than that. So I think the 2020 election, it's going to still be key on education in terms of it's as, as an investment, not an expenditure. And that, and that we have to recognize that, 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 that the idea of choice is not the answer uh, in, any, in, in any element, especially in rural education. So I, I want to make sure education is kept on the, on the front burner. And, and we've got numerous Democratic folks all running for the presidency as we well know. It's almost like you could throw a, a dart at a dartboard full of faces and say, who hits it? Who hits? To determine who's going to run. But we know that the current administration is going to continue to work on the idea of that, that public education is not necessarily the answer, that there are other options. And, 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 and choice is one of those key things. We've got to make sure we, we, we battle that strongly. And that and that, and that education is the key to economic development. I mean, that's it's, it's so important. Without a without an educated electorate, we're not going to have the, 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 a future for this country. So all those things together, I mean, you kind of wrap them up in a, in a nice, you know, Web of sorts that, that all go together. It, it, it just education's got to be continued to be a priority within whoever runs uh, and, and, and on the Democratic side because we know where it's going to come from on the other side. So I don't mean to sound partisan with that comment, but it's, it's it's a fact of life, and we have to make sure that education is a part of of of, of, of the agenda of, of any anybody running for this for the presidency of 2020. And I think we can do that. I mean, through organizations like yours, through NEA, through the American uh, Council of Education, ACE, the higher ed group, we we can make it happen. We just have to be, I used to always remember there was a term, I remember when I was teaching, you have hate and you have love. But of those two, the worst of the two is apathy. You'd rather hate something or love something. That's great. You give an emotion. But when you have apathy and complacency, that is the worst. We don't want to make sure we want to make sure there's no apathy or complacency when it comes to education in the 2020 election. That's the key.
0: That's the key. And I think as we talk about these 2020 elections, I've been focusing and the answers from our podcast guests have really focused on the presidential election. But we all know that the real consequence of elections, particularly for public education, is state and local elections. So really the impact of education or the impact of elections on education will matter by who votes. So it's almost initially just a matter of getting out to vote for 2020, but that would be an entirely separate podcast. And so John, we had to truncate our conversation today and we're going to have a whole separate podcast where we actually dig into the specifics of NAFIS and rural and rural education policy. So we'll have you back for another episode in a few weeks. But I want to thank you for sticking with us. Thank our listeners for tuning in. We've been talking with John Forkenbrock, a career policy and education advocacy specialist who has served as an educator in the classroom starting in Iowa, did some time on the Hill working in key committees with foundational federal education policy programs, including Perkins, and then spent a couple of decades with NAFIS, the National Association of Federally Impacted Schools. John, thank you for taking time to share your insights and perspectives with us. And listeners, thank you for staying with us. This is Pep Talk, the AASA Federal Education Policy Podcast. Thank you and have a good day.